in case you're wondering why you should come to church, one very good reason is to be in a room filled with people singing from the heart, all I have is Christ. What an incredible thing to be a part of is to hear the people of God singing those words. I pray that those words this morning are a reality for you, not just words. As I've often said before, much like the songs at Christmas time, we sing them before we are saved, and they are just words, and maybe they give us happy, nostalgic feelings. But after we come to know God through Christ, after we come to be redeemed, those words become amazing. They take on life that they never had before. And so I pray this morning that as you say those words, all I have is Christ, that that is indeed the case from your heart. If you would please go with me to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. Today is part two of a set of sermons. So this is part two of really one bigger sermon, we could say. One big sermon that you probably don't want to endure in one sermon. But this is part two of a set of sermons that we started last week on this very well-known passage, Genesis 22, which we could entitle The Sacrifice of Isaac, as we see there in the, uh, the ESV, the editors of the ESV. Or probably better, it should be entitled The Test of Abraham. And that's why we've entitled this set of sermons, The Climactic Test. That's what we have here, a climax in the story of Abraham. And this climax happens to be a test, a great test. Last week, I gave you the outline for these two sermons, which you'll find in your bulletin. So if you, you'll go there and see, and uh, basically just, uh, it's, it's, it's three points just to go through this text, the command, the conduct, and the character. So first, the command of God. We looked at the first two last week, the command and the conduct, the command of God. Put simply, God comes to Abraham, his servant, and he says to him, I want you to sacrifice your only and beloved son. And by the way, this is the son of promise, the only beloved son of promise. I want you to take him to a place I'll show you, and I want you to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. And we talked about the timing of that, the intimacy of that, and the gravity of that. And we will reiterate some of those as we go forward today. But that was part of what we did last week. So the command of God. And then we looked at the conduct of Abraham. We saw his immediate action, his right away obedience, that when God tells him to do this, we don't get this sort of long, drawn out period of uh, questioning God and sort of... uh, Wondering, oh God, are you sure this is what you want me to do? And so forth. No, immediately he, he jumps into action and does exactly what God tells him to do quickly. And then we saw the faithful words that if we're wondering what is in Abraham's mind and heart as being, he's being asked to do this uh, seemingly, uh, th- well, th- this terrible thing, this horrible thing, this, this thing that for him would be heartbreaking, hope crushing, what's in his heart? Well, many speculate on how he would have felt, and there's, there's something to gain by thinking through that. But the text is interested in showing one thing, that if we could put a window on the chest and the, the head of Abraham, what we would find in there would be faith. And so we see these faithful words of Abraham. We get two 
basically two words, two bits of dialogue from Abraham, and it, it has to do with his confidence in the Lord. So we get these faithful words, and then we get this perseverance to the end that it's not as though Abraham sets out on this course. He's got to travel three days with his son, whom he's going to sacrifice. He thinks he's going to sacrifice him. And on this three-day journey, we would imagine at any point that Abraham would have said, no way, I'm done. He's walking with his son. His son looking at him saying, my, my father, this is his precious boy, probably a teenager. And at any point, Abraham could have just lost his courage, lost the will to do this, and just fallen by the wayside. But he doesn't. And then we see that in the last minute, as he's going to do it, he puts Isaac, he binds him and puts him on the altar to sacrifice him, and he lifts up the knife to do it, and he's going to do it. He's going to do what God has commanded him to do. But we see that God stops him. He perseveres to the end, but God stops him. And that's where we pick up in verse 11 as we come now to consider the character of God. We have the command of God, the conduct of Abraham, and now we come back and look at the character of God. But you might be thinking, haven't we already learned quite a bit about God's character from this story so far? I mean, haven't we learned so much about who God is? And in fact, we have all throughout Scripture, no matter what the the, the subsidiary focus or what the, the specific focus in that text might be, it's always trying to teach us. The Scriptures are always trying to teach us about the character of God. Who is this God? We have a theocentric Bible. A Bible that is focused on God, which means and tells us, as I've said many times before, when we make the Bible about us, we miss the Bible. We miss the message of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit as we come to live in a God-centered world with a God-centered Bible. So we've already seen quite a bit, and I just want to mention four things that we've seen about God so far before we even get to this point today, the character of God. So four things that we've seen so far. And the first is that, simply put, God tests us. This is important because we're trying to get a sense for who this God is. Remember, you're, you're picking up your Bible and you're just simply exploring the God of Christianity. You're starting in Genesis 1 at the very beginning. This is the unfolding revelation of God. We're asking the question, who is this God? And what we, what we find here so far, a basic point, is that God tests us. He tests his people. He does this to expose our hearts, to pull us away from the world, and to do us good in the end. We saw that. We see that in the case of Job, especially. You read the end of Job. We see that all throughout Scripture. And as I quoted last week, very specifically from Deuteronomy, God tests us to do us good. This tells us something about God. This is very important information for us as we're trying to navigate the Christian life. We also learned that God prepares us for those tests. God is not just throwing down tests on us and waiting for us to fall, but he gives us all that we need. He beefs us up for the test. Then he puts the test on us. We have all the equipment that we need in order to endure that test, and then we endure it for his glory. He prepares us with smaller tests, with much faithfulness, And with an intimate relationship of trust where we know him and he knows us and we know that he knows us. And it's out of that matrix that we're tested. That's the context for testing. 
So we learn that about God. That God will not accept part of us. This is something else we've learned so far about God from this, this command of God, this testing, this sacrifice, that God will not accept a part of you. He will not accept a comfortable devotion, a supposed faith without obedience, a life in which we love the gift more than the giver. God will not accept that kind of Christian life. That kind of Christian life, listen, is no Christian life at all. There's only one kind of Christian life. There's only one kind of in Christness, And it is to forsake all to follow Christ. The one who does not forsake all to follow Christ is not worthy of Christ. Christ himself says. We must, as it were, hate even our own families to follow him. Not literally understood that we would hate our families to follow Jesus. We know means that in the fullest sense we begin to love our families in a way we never could before. But that in comparison to Christ, any love that we might have for those close to us would be as hate. When compared to where he is elevated in our hearts. So we learn this about God. And we learn, we have learned finally, that God displays the glory of his grace through the conduct of his people. That God shows himself great. He shows himself good and perfect and pure and powerful and able and all of these things. He shows this by means of the grace that he pours into the hearts of his people. He reshapes hearts. And you've seen this if you're a Christian. You go back and you look at your life before Christ. And you see what a mess it was. And how turned away from God your heart was. And how idolatrous your heart was. And then God came in and he radically changed you. Even if you weren't a drug addict or an alcoholic or whatever else before. Or a prostitute or whatever. All those things that we tend to associate. Well, that's really bad. That's really sinful. Even if God did not change you from that to something away from that. All of us can attest to the fact that what God changed us from to what God changed us to is nothing short of a miracle. And that's the grace of God in the human heart. So we've learned this already about God before we even come to verse 11. But as we come to verse 11 today and work our way to the end of this chapter, chapter 22, we see that God's character becomes even more explicit. So we've had to infer these things. These are implied by what we've read so far. Uh, apart from the, the specific testing. We see that clearly in the opening verses. But we've had to. These are implications of what we've read. Now we get explicit information about God's character. Here we clearly see God's character through what he says. And what he provides. And I want to give you four things. And these aren't on the outline. You've just got the basic outline there. So if you want to write these down. This is what we'll be looking at today. Four things about God. Or telling us about God's character. First, the comforting affirmation. Second, the sacrificial substitute. Third, the divine oath. And then finally, the future wife. The comforting affirmation, the sacrificial substitute, the divine oath, and then the future wife. So if you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. And then we will look at these together. This is God's word, perfect and profitable 
for his people. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham. He said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hatzo, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maacah. If you will, please go ahead and be seated. Yes, we have a little bit of genealogy to cover today. For those of you who are excited about genealogies, probably maybe one or two of you out there, maybe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help and ask that he will show us himself, his character, especially his character, as we'll see today, in the face of Christ as we come to this wonderful passage. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. God, it is such an amazing thing to study your word and to be able to hear you speak to us 4,000 years after these events and over 3,500 years since they were written. Father, we are amazed at your story. We are amazed at your sovereign control over history and your faithfulness and your plans which you purposed before the world began. As Paul will say that, that you did all of this, you ordained all of this, you determined all of this before the world began. That the Lamb of God was slain in that mysterious statement before the world began, before the foundation of the world in your mind, Father. That we were in Christ predestined for adoption as sons. And that this happened in your very will, in your very mind, before the world began. We praise you that you are this God. Our lives, Father, are so tossed to and fro. They are fragile. And we see that even this day. Some of us tired. Some of us sick. Some of us stressed out. We see, Father, that our lives are just tattered oftentimes by the fallenness of this world and of our own hearts and of our own lives and the lives of those close to us. But, Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the God we read about in these precious pages of Holy Scripture that the people of God have clung to for millennia, that you are the same God today, with the sons of Abraham, the daughters of Abraham, as you were with him, the father of faith. And so God, help us trust in you as our God. Help us trust in you by means of your word. Help us not look to you as you are created in our own imagination or by our culture, but help us understand who you are through your revelation. And so, Lord, we come now to your Bible. We pray that you would show us yourself here in these pages, knowing that nowhere else will we find you, God, but rather a projection of our own idolatrous hearts. We come today to see you, the true God, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we'll look at as we come to verses 11 and following is the comforting affirmation. The comforting affirmation. I started the sermon last week by making clear that all of this is a test. And it's very important to remember that. Sometimes apologetically people come forward and they point at this this passage and they they say, look, what in the world is going on here? It's, It's a test from the very beginning. And it's important that we don't Miss that. The, the writer, the author wants us to know that at the onset very clearly. God is not a God who is worshipped through child sacrifice. He wasn't that way then and he is not that way now. Those were the false gods of the ancient world who were worshipped by people throwing their children off of cliffs and into fires. Doing this wicked evil. That is not the God of Abraham. But what we have here, and this is important, follow this. If you're struggling with that and you're trying to understand this, but how could God even put it in Abraham's mind that he would do that, be that kind of God? If you're struggling with that, I want you to understand what is going on with this test. What we have here is the only fitting test for Abraham's faith. You have to understand that. No other test would do 
for Abraham. There are many tests that have been faced by the people of God since. But for this man at this time, given God's promises to him, no other test would do. Isaac encapsulates God's promises and Abraham's hope. All of it. He had waited 25 years for the birth of this promised child. 25 years through whom God would multiply his descendants like the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven. I mean, this man is just wandering around in other people's land, living in tents. And all these grand promises that have kept Abraham up at night with a big smile on his face, everything hinging on this child. In Genesis 21, 12, God had said to him very clearly through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. So God is testing whether or not Abraham believes that God can and will do this no matter what. No other test would do. Can God do this even if, dot, 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 even if he must sacrifice Isaac, the one through whom all these promises will be fulfilled? Will he do it? No matter what. Will God keep his word? Will God work this out? Abraham's answer to these questions is an emphatic yes. And that's what we need to see from from this, this story. Is that Abraham answers this question. These set of questions. Will God keep his promises? Yes. Will God do what he said he's going to do? No matter what. Emphatically. Yes. In 22 verse 5. It says, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, here's the question. Why does Abraham say that to his servants? Is he just deceiving his servants? I mean, if he looks at his servants and says, I'm going to go over here and sacrifice my son. Is that why he's saying that? Is he saying that so his servants won't freak out and attack him and maybe say, no, you can't do that, Abraham. Is that why he's saying it? No, he's saying it because that's what he really believes He believes that both he and the boy will return. We know that because of what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 19. He says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words... The writer of Hebrews is interpreting those words that we read in Genesis 22. And the writer of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us Abraham is so convinced about the promises of God. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That even if he must sacrifice his son, God's going to raise him from the dead. And he and his son are going to be back in a short time to see these servants. And it is precisely because Abraham answers yes to those questions, because he believes that God will keep his promise no matter what, that he obeys right away, all the way. Now, let me say this to you. You have to see this. This is so important. Do you see here the relationship between faith and obedience? Do you see the relationship between these two things, faith and obedience? Maybe You are trying really hard to obey God and you keep failing. Why is that? Why is it? I mean, God, I'm trying so hard to obey. Why is it not working? Why do I keep falling into the same old sin? And this is where you have to see in in Abraham the, the, the very tight relationship between faith 
and obedience. Because here's what you need to know, child of God. If you pursue obedience without explicit, faithful confidence in the gospel, you'll fall on your face. Obedience outside of faith, detached from faith, dangling in and of itself as this thing to pursue will always fail you. You won't obey. You'll keep falling. You'll keep disobeying. But if you focus on trusting God's promises in and through Christ and who God says he is to you, it is out of that faith in God that you will be able to obey. We see that so clearly with this man of faith. So what is God's response to Abraham's conduct? What is God's response to Abraham's faith Fueled obedience. Look at verses 11 to 12 as we consider the comforting affirmation. Verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. As the title for this point indicates, there are really two ideas here. As we see God responding to what Abraham does. We see God doing something. He commands Abraham. And we looked at last week Abraham's response to what God commands. And now we're looking at God's response to what Abraham does. We're looking at God's response to Abraham's behavior, his conduct, his response to God's command. And what we see here is comfort and affirmation. God stops Abraham, ensuring him that child sacrifice is not his way, that he won't have to lose his son, and certainly not by his own hand. But even more, you can imagine, I mean, can you imagine how Abraham felt when God said to him, don't do it, don't do it. The, the relief, the comfort would have been truly overwhelming. Probably there is no comfort that anyone has ever received that would have been more overwhelming than what he experienced in that moment. I can't imagine any example. If you think of one, let me know. More comforting than anything we could imagine. But even more important than the comfort is the affirmation. God essentially affirms the authenticity of Abraham's faith, that he is a true believer. See this, that he is on the path of life. To use Jesus's language, that he is on the narrow way, that he is on the path of wisdom, on the path of fearing God and holding nothing back, that he is on the path of true God worship rather than idolatry. Proverbs 9:10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. says the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And we see this, an example of this with Job. Job was a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And so when when God comes to Abraham and says that you are a a God-fearing person, what God is saying to him is that Abraham, he's affirming in him that Abraham turns away from the evil of unbelief and disobedience. Let me say this, that's natural to us all. We were born into that. We don't become 
unbelieving cynics and skeptics. We don't become those who doubt God and disobey God and and cast off his authority. We are born that. We see it in all of our children. Be honest with yourself. We see that in our own hearts. We see that in our children. Born hating authority. Even the cutest ones. Born hating authority. So they have to be disciplined. But we see here clearly that the Lord comes to Abraham and affirms him that he is not an unbeliever. He is not a disobedient man. He is a man of God. And that is what the Lord is affirming in this instance. So what are the implications of this for the Christian life? Well, I think they're twofold. As we think about the implications for us, what does this have to do with us? Great. God did that for Abraham. What does that have to do with with us? Well, first, God gives us grace and then affirms the presence of that grace in our lives. Isn't that amazing? That is what our Heavenly Father does. God is in the business of assurance. That's why John says at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, I've written these things that you might know, that you might believe, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, you might believe he is the Christ, that you might know that you have eternal life. You have eternal life through believing in Christ. And we see that all throughout 1 John. These things are written so that you might have assurance that you belong to Christ. God is not in the business of keeping you in a state of doubt or wonder about your relationship to him. God is in the work. He's in the business of assuring you of your identity in him, of affirming you as one of his children that you might in faith go and live unto him. That is what we see here. He gives grace and then puts a big spotlight on it for us to see. Not that we would become prideful and say, well, look at all this grace in me. I'm just wonderful. No, because what is grace? It's a gift that we might see it and delight in God. That we might see it and celebrate his gift and worship him and not our own ability to do anything. So that's the first thing we see, an implication. The second is that God does this, and this is the uncomfortable bit. God does this affirming work and this assuring work, how? Through tests. We don't like that part. We really don't like that part because it would be great if, if the Christian life were just like a Saturday morning early, getting up before the kids wake up, having a hot cup of coffee and a wonderful time in your devotional and with the birds chirping, a nice breeze. It's perfect. If, if the Christian life were that way, it would, we would say, wonderful. I'm going to sign up. Everybody be signing up for that. Christian life is filled with tests and filled with trials Because it is in the testing, see this, it's in the trials that we are affirmed and assured of who we are in God, of who we are in Christ. This is the reason why 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 7, he says the tested, listen to the language, the tested genuineness of your faith. Do you hear the language? He doesn't say your faith. He says the tested genuineness of your faith. In other words, the authentic faith that you have, knowing it's authentic because it's been tested, is more precious than gold that perishes. So think about that, Christian, this morning. You're, going, you're undergoing some serious issues in your life. You're undergoing some serious heavy tests, some trials. This is a, a plea for you. This is an invitation for you to say, praise God. He's testing my faith, and the genuineness of my faith will come out of this and will be more precious to me than gold, than health that I don't have, than peace that I don't have, or whatever. Fill in the blank. 
So after this comforting affirmation, what does God do next? And this is the most beautiful part of this entire passage as we consider this. And that is the sacrificial substitute. So look with me at verses 13 to 14. Verses 13 to 14, the sacrificial substitute. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Very important there. Instead of, in place of, on behalf of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So what's going on here? What we see, I think, are two things. Substitution and commemoration. God providentially at that very moment miraculously even, not miraculously in the sense that he just created a ram in that moment, and there it was, but miraculously. I mean, by the way, God's providence is miraculous, isn't it? That God can take all of the things that go on in life and make these things add up in the way that they do to make uh, people see people at certain times under certain circumstances, that God can move things this way. I mean, that is miraculous in the sense that it is a clear demonstration of the power of God here and now. We see that. All of a sudden, well, there's a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. God providentially provides that, a substitutionary sacrifice, a ram in place of his son. God will be worshipped. Sacrifices will be made, but with the ram, not with the son. And then... Abraham commemorates this provision by naming the place the Lord will provide, which turns into a saying associated with the area of the Temple Mount for many years to come. We remember that as we learned from 2 Chronicles, that the place where Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, is the place, the future site of the temple, which is very close to the site of Calvary, the place where Christ suffered and died for sinners. But as we think about this substitution and commemoration with the ram, there is so much more to see here. So much more. And in order to see it, we have to go back to the picture of father and son. So I want you to go back to what we've seen so far as we have father and son together. And by the way, the language throughout is very interesting. The two of them together. The two of them together. We get this at least twice where the imagery between father and son is very intimate. The intimate relationship between father and son can be seen most explicitly when we have Abraham going, uh, Isaac going, my father. And then shortly after we have my son, my son. We get this language that's just gluing together, as it were, father and son. We have a father. Now listen to these details. We have a father who is willing to sacrifice his only beloved son. We have a father who takes the fire and the knife, the means of sacrifice, the instrumentation of sacrifice. He takes the fire and the knife in his hand to sacrifice his own son. We have a son who carries the wood on his back and then is later placed on that wood. We have a son who is willingly and submissively and trustingly bound and laid on the altar. What we have in Genesis 22 is one of the most striking pictures of the gospel in all of the Bible. 
And I would encourage you, I was talking with my son last night about this story. We were talking about how it points to Christ, how it points to the Father and the Son. And he said, he said, this is, this is like a little, he was trying to explain, this is like a little picture of Christ on the cross. And that's exactly what it is. And the way that we can teach our kids the gospel, one of the ways we can teach our kids the gospel is by referring back to these kinds of stories. The story of Genesis 22 shows the Father giving his Son. And we can go back to the Passover lamb and the blood. It's one of the most powerful images in my mind as I think about the gospel. For what happens in the gospel, the blood over the doorposts of the houses is like the blood of Christ over the doorpost, if you will, of our hearts. What a a powerful image that our kids can begin to understand. Okay, just like the blood over the door, God passed over it, Christ's blood, God passes over and doesn't judge us for our sin. The same is true of this glorious picture, this little type of Christ and the gospel. So let me show you. Concerning the Father, this is what we read. I'm talking about God the Father and God the Son now. So I'm drawing a parallel between Abraham, Father, Isaac, Son, and I'm telling you that this is a picture, a type of the relationship between the Father and the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and what happens at the cross. We read in Matthew 3.17, concerning the Father at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Do you see that? The fire and the knife in the hand, if you will, of the father as he crushes the son and sacrifices the son for us. For us. Concerning the son, we read Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Does Isaac say anything throughout this period? No, dad, no, don't, no, what are you doing, dad? We don't get any of that. He goes silently, a picture of Christ. John 18, 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. John 19, 17 to 18, and Jesus went out bearing his own cross Just as Isaac carrying his wood, the wood upon which he'll be sacrificed up to the place of sacrifice. Christ going up the hill to the place of sacrifice, bearing his own cross. And then he is nailed to it. Just as Isaac was laid upon the very wood that he carried. In verses 7 and 8, we get a dialogue between Abraham and his son Isaac. My father... Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I I see all this other stuff that you're going to use to sacrifice, but but I don't I don't I don't see I don't see an animal. Where's where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. There would be many lambs sacrificed. In the history of God's people. The Passover lambs. The lambs of the sacrificial system. Throughout the day and throughout the year. 
Many lambs would be sacrificed in the tabernacle and the temple, but there is only one lamb, only one lamb who can act as a sacrificial substitute, who has the power to remove sin, who has the power to actually stand in the place of sinners. Instead of his son, a ram was offered. And instead of me, the lamb of God was offered. Instead of you, the lamb of God was offered. Only one lamb who has the power to act as a sacrificial substitute for you. That is the gospel. That is the gospel of Christ. It is not clean up your life and do better and be really moral. It is not raise your kids well and so forth. It is Christ crucified for sinners. Trust in him alone. That's the gospel. He became a sacrificial substitute for sinners. And by believing in him, all of our sins are forgiven, paid for by his death. That is the gospel of Christ. God did provide this lamb. John 1, 29, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter 1 Peter 1.19, we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Revelation 5.6, at the end of the Bible, as you get all the way to the very end, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, slaughtered, slaughtered. The same word used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 22. Christ is slaughtered. And Abraham lifted up his hand to slaughter his son. And in Revelation 5, 9, we see the praise of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. This is to Christ. For you were slain. You were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this celebration of Christ's saving work for all nations goes back to the promise of God that in Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that leads us to our next part of this passage where we look at the divine oath. Look at verses 15 to 18. So we've seen the comforting affirmation. We've seen the sacrificial substitute, how it, how it is a picture pointing to Christ. The ram points to Christ. The relationship of father and son point to Christ. The lamb that Abraham prophetically mentions points to Christ. Now we see the divine oath, verses 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Isn't that amazing? We just read from Revelation how at the end of time, We're going to have all this praising of God because through Christ, the slain lamb, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation of people have been saved. And here we're going back, scrolling all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 22. And we're seeing where all this, all this terminology and all these themes come from here with father Abraham. Here in these verses, God reiterates the promises that he's been giving Abraham since the beginning. Blessings, offspring, as many as the stars and the sand. But here it becomes a little more specific. This offspring will be a particular person. 
who shall possess the gate of his enemies. Isn't that interesting? That here God is telling Abraham, he's told him he's going to have, in the first part he tells him that his offspring is going to be as many as the stars and as much as the, as the sand on the seashore. Well, that, that's a plurality, right? That means going to, there's going to be many of them. That's very clear. But couched in this, and see how this is unfolding, how God's story is unfolding. Couched within this idea of many offspring is this singularity, this one single individual who will possess the gate of his enemies in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is why Paul in Galatians 3.16 says this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, this is Paul, it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So here we see clearly that God is promising Abraham a single offspring. And here's what's amazing for us as we see this. This descendant of Abraham will be both, see this, already we're seeing this, he will be both a slain lamb and a conquering king. He will be the lamb through whom God's people are reconciled to him. And he will also be the conquering king who possesses the gates of his enemies. The king and the lamb. The lion and the lamb. And it is fitting that this climactic test for Abraham and this climactic expression of obedient faith is met with a a climactic confirmation from God. God says in this passage, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And Hebrews 6, as uh, Mark read to us earlier, earlier unpacks this in Hebrews 6 verses 13 to 18, the writer says this about this oath that God makes. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. An oath that you swear by something greater is meant to seal the deal, right? This is how the writer of Hebrews explains this oath that God makes to Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis. He says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, what God is doing for Abraham in this passage He's promised him so many times. He's confirmed this for him in so many ways. You remember there was the covenant and then there was the coming to him many times and appearing to him and saying, I promise you this. I promise you this. We've seen that so much repetition in the narrative of Abraham. But here, what Hebrews is saying is that God in this passage, at this climactic moment in the story, he he seals once and for all. All those promises, all that covenant making, he seals it with an oath by his own name, by his own character. God backs his promises with his very nature. It is impossible for him to lie. And you know what this means for us? It means exactly what the writer of Hebrews says it means. We can flee for refuge 
to this God. This God is not a a mirage. This God is not one who's always backing up away from us as we flee towards him. He is one like the, the, the parable of the, of the wicked son who goes away and spends all of his father's money, the prodigal son, and comes back. What does the father do? Does it back up and go to the backyard and say, push him away or make it more of a, a long distance for him to get to him? No, the father runs out to meet him, puts his cloak on him and a ring on his finger. He embraces him. That is how God is to us when we flee to him for refuge. He can be trusted. He is a good Father, so let me ask you this. Room this size this morning, this many folks, are you one who has fled to God for refuge? Or are you finding refuge in so many other things? You think that if I can just do this or that, or my life works out this way or that way, that will be so great. I'll have stability, I'll have hope. You'll have nothing because in the end, without Christ, you will die in your sins and face the judge. No matter how much Satan deceives you into a nice, happy life here, one day you will die and you will stand before this God. Will you have in that day fled to him for refuge? This is an invitation to fly to this faithful, never lying, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And for those of us who have, will you hold fast to him? Will you hold tight to him when you're confused? When it's uncertain, when the ground is shaky, will you hold on to him? As the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast to the hope set before you, knowing that the God who promised is the God who will deliver. As we finish up this morning, I want you to look briefly at the future wife. As we finish up, we look at just these latter verses, verses 19 to 24. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hatso, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Meachah. You know, after everything we've read so far, this all seems like pretty boring stuff. You're like, okay, next story. And this is the kind of thing oftentimes that we skip over in um, reading the Bible. These little bits, it's just like little, a little, uh, little afterthought, kind of just preparing us like a little bridge, you know, just bridging from one story to the next. And in some ways, this is a bridge. In some ways, it is transitional in nature. In fact, it is very much the case. But this is not just filler material. This is not just a wobbly rope bridge that you don't want to walk across when you go up into the mountains. This is not just filler. It is significant that Abraham returns to Beersheba with his son. Remember that this is the place where he called on the Lord as, as who? Remember? At the end of chapter 21, Abraham there calls, plants a tree, and he calls on the name of the Lord as, as who? The everlasting God. 
It was in Beersheba that he recognized that the Lord was the everlasting God. So as Abraham returns to this place, he is reminded that the God who has been faithful today will be faithful tomorrow. The God who has been faithful in his life will be faithful in the life of his son. The everlasting God will keep his promises. But that's just the first thing I want you to see. This is, this is even more exciting as we finish up this morning. It is here that a future begins to emerge for Isaac. Abraham gets word that his brother Nahor has experienced a growing family. It just happens to be at this time that Abraham gets word that his brother Nahor now has had all, these, all of these children. And we have a genealogy with only one daughter mentioned, Rebekah. And Rebekah will be Isaac's future wife, for she is Isaac's future wife. Later we see that Abraham would not take Isaac's future wife from the Canaanites, but from his own family. But there's one final thing that we need to see this morning, which I find so fascinating. I find this just an incredible little nugget. This reference back to Nahor and Milcah takes us back to Terah in Genesis 11. I was so excited this morning. I was talking to Jennifer about this, and she said, uh, she, I just lost her two or three times. She was going, going, going like crazy. And, and she was like, you need, you need a diagram to explain this. You know, so I'm going to try to explain it in the best way that I can. She, she did get it. I don't want you to think she, she did understand what I was saying. So there's hope. There's hope. Uh, but uh, this, is what, uh, this is what I think is going on here. This reference back to Nahor and Milcah takes us back to Terah in Genesis 11. This is really cool. Takes us back to Terah in Genesis 11. Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Well, for a long time now, we haven't had any interest in, in most of that because we've just been focused on Abram, who became Abraham. And of course, Lot, and Lot was Haran's son, and Haran died, and Lot was taken care of by Abraham. But for a long time now, we've just lost track of that family. We're really focused on this branch, on the Abram branch. But now things are sort of brought together. Milcah, who marries Nahor, is Haran's daughter. I know it sounds weird, but Haran, Nahor, and Abram are brothers. Haran's daughter, Milcah, marries her uncle. Very strange, I know. Marries her uncle, Nahor. And it is through Nahor and Milcah that all of these sons are born, to whom, to Bethuel, is born Rebekah. And so what's going on here? Well, you probably, probably lost. So in other words, the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah will pull everything together. Hear this. Will pull everything together under Terah. So what effect should this have on the reader? Okay, what effect should this have on you? Well, if you started coming since we've been looking at Abraham, you maybe won't feel the weight of this quite as much. So go back and read Genesis 1 to 11. But if you've been going through this all along for the last number of months, you will feel the weight of this, I think. That it brings us back to those first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And therefore, it brings us back to the line of the seed from Adam through Seth to Noah, through Shem to Terah, through Abram. Do you see how all that's happening? The reader has been lost in the details. This God has become maybe, for some readers, a smaller God. 
He's a God working in the life of this one man. And he's great and he's faithful and he keeps his promises and he brings about a child. But he's really just a God in this very narrow sense of this man, Abraham. And when you get to the end of this narrative at this point, you're reminded, no, he is the God of Genesis 1 to 11. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator. He's the God who made a promise to the first humans that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan and undo the fall. An amazing little moment of seeming boringness in this genealogy. We get a little arrow pointing us back to the God of the universe of Genesis 1 to 11 who is keeping his promise to Adam and Eve to bring about his son, his seed, the seed of the woman through the life of Father Abraham. I hope that you are beginning to see how your Bible fits together. It's not just a book of little wisdom for life so you can go out and have a happy life and a comfortable life. It's not just a a book filled with self-help nuggets. It is a story. And it is a story about a faithful, loving God and a sovereign Lord of history who will bring all things together in Christ Jesus. Will you be brought together in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for your great story. We thank you for how you tie together the pages of Scripture to show us that it is, in fact, your word. As many have written about throughout the centuries, the Bible is self-authenticating. It doesn't need archaeology and history and scholarly work to show its validity, but it shows its validity through its own pages. It shows its validity because it is valid, because it is your breath. It is your word. And we praise you, God, that you are showing us that We ask you, Father, to give us trust in your word and to give us trust in your word incarnate, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would cling to him, that we would hope in him, that we would hope in no other, that we would fear you and turn away from fearing false gods. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.